Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000, who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps, and they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures, before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God in the lamb, and in their mouths no lie was found for they are blameless. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels, and the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here's the call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard the voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. I, then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like the Son of Man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he, sat on the, so he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire, and he called with a loud voice to the one who had a sharp sickle, put, your, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as the horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. How are we this morning? Great. great. After that reading, we're great over here. Was that Sonia? Sonia's great. The rest of you will get there, I promise, as we walk through this. So Revelation, if you, if you haven't been here before, someone invited you, welcome. Just so you know, we are a very welcoming, hospitable church, and we're in a very intense book of the Bible right now. And we as Christians do not hide from the harder stuff of God. We dive into it, and we ask him to give us wisdom. So just on the front end, this disclaimer, this is an intense book. What Sam just read, there's a lot there, and we're going to walk through it. And it reminds me, there's a famous quote, a guy who's not from the States, uh, looking at America and the state of the church decades ago, and this was this quote that has stuck 
for a long, long time describing what the church in America is like. He says this. This is what we're propagating in our churches. A God without wrath that has brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. It's like all the hard stuff with Christianity. More and more, it's easier to kind of leave those on the shelf so that we can deal with easier things like love, which is tied to wrath, but we won't, we'll talk about that later. Mercy, goodness, kindness, gentleness. The book of Revelation is sort of like doing this to us. We just can't avoid talking about the harder reality of Christianity. And what we're talking about today is the weapons that God has given us as his people, how we're to do battle against good and evil. So I want to show you, here's the three weapons we're going to walk through, and then I'll remind you of the context. Here's our weapons we have against evil. We have a song, we have a message, and we have a day. And that'll make sense in context. But this chapter 14 breaks down into three sections, a song, a message, and a day. And those are the weapons that we have as the church to do battle against good and evil. But here's what I want to do. If that man is right, and it is easy to believe in a God without wrath, without judgment, a Christ without a cross, it's easy to not believe in sin. What Our work is cut out for us. The spirit is working against the grain of the society and the culture we live in and in the hearts of this room. So I just want to pause, and I want each of us to ask God to say the harder things, say the more sober-minded things, and penetrate our hearts as our, we gather this morning. So let's pray for that. God, we love comfort and distraction and ease. I'm at the top of that list. But as your followers, we also know we have to face harder truths, harder realities, more sober-minded judgments. So God, that's what we walk into this morning. That's what we sit under in this book of Revelation, is we sit under some stuff, some statements, some descriptions that'll be hard. So God, I pray that we would receive them in the ways that you want us to receive them. Not in unhealthy ways, but in healthy ways. Let us receive what you have to say, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I just want to remind us, Revelation, like I said, is crazy. It's this image. Apostle John is one of Jesus' best friends. He's the last living apostle. He's out on this island. He's in prison, sort of like a... Uh, Alcatraz-type situation, and he sees this grand vision, which becomes the book of Revelation that he writes down. So often in Revelation, when we get into trouble, is we're trying to be so specific and logical and concrete and chronological. And this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened, and this happened. He, what's happening is he walks out, and he just sees all sorts of things. So here's an image just to give us a, an idea of what John's. We're talking about like Sistine Chapel sort of stuff. You walk out, and it's like, wow, that, and then that, and then that. Just to show you, verse 1, here's how John describes, then I looked, go to verse 6, then I saw another angel, and then verse 14 says, then I looked, and behold, a whole other image. So looking at that, that's what John's seeing. Then I looked, and I saw this, this mountain. And then I looked over here, and then I looked over here, and he writes it all down, and it's basically the weapons of the Lord. Here's the context of where we're at. Chapter 12, 13, 14 is the battle of good and evil in the world. 
12 is the beginning of the battle of good and evil. There's this pregnant woman and her child and a dragon trying to devour. It's like the start of the garden, Adam and Eve. And God says, Eve, through your seed, we will defeat evil once and for all. And it's sort of this cryptic language. And we get this battle of good and evil. And then it plays itself out. And there's a dragon and a land beast and a sea beast. And just, oh, such crazy things. Chapter 14 is how we as the people of God are to do battle or rather rest in the battle that's already been won against good and evil. So 12, 13, 14, picture it as the same sort of mini documentary in the grand total scheme of Revelation, which is telling the story of redemption in this world. 12, 13, 14 is a sort of mini version. And the first thing we see is the first weapon we have. I want to read it together, and it's simply a song. So go to 14, what Sam just read for us. I want to read verse 1 through 5 again together. Remember, picture you're in the Sistine Chapel. You've seen a lot of crazy stuff already. You turn your head just slightly. Here's what's happening to John. Then I looked, and behold, now on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. All characters that have been in this book so far. No one could learn that song except 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. We'll go back to that. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. So remember, evil personified in a dragon, a land beast, a sea beast, and just total destruction. Good. Here's the picture of what's the battle of good. Then I saw a mountain. And on it, here's what, I'm just going to walk through all the things we just heard. There's 144,000 people standing on the mountain. We'll talk about it in a second. And they all have a tattoo of the Father's name on their head before him. And he hears this loud roar of music, like the sound of many harps blaring through as he's looking at this image. And these on the mountain, what he sees is those who have not defiled themselves. The way they're described is the ones who followed the Lamb, the redeemed, And they're the virgins. And there are no lies in their mouth. They are blameless. Some of this is easy. Some of this takes a little bit of work. The easiest thing I think to understand, because it's happened to us so many times in the book of Revelation, is the number. 144,000. That's just completion. That's like the fullness of the people of God. What are we talking about? Abraham? Yes. What are you talking about? The Christians in this church right now, yes. The complete picture of the people of God, 144,000, is a way to describe that. What about the tattoo of the Father's name? That's just allegiance. They are following God. And then the thing that gets a little weird is how they're described. They have not defiled themselves, nothing impure out of their mouth, and they are like virgins, those who have not defiled themselves with women, these redeemed from the earth. What is being described here? I just want to walk through the, the, the awkwardness of, like, what's being said with virgins? Here's one option, which is not a great option. They're actual, legitimate virgins up on this mountain. Here's the problem. If 144,000, wherever you look in this book, the book of Revelation, talks about the whole people of God, we're in trouble because anyone married 
and a lot of us in this room are not virgins, so it's like a discrepancy. So that sort of falls out pretty quickly, logically. Here's the one that comes closest, although it doesn't land as well. In the Old Testament, when the soldiers would go to battle, part of what they would have to do, this is the David and Bathsheba story, part of what made it so gross. First of all, what he did to her. But second of all, all of his men were prepared for battle because they had refrained from sexual relations with their wife. Why? Because they were preparing for battle as a way to like sanctify themselves as they went into battle. This could be language to describe, and that's the army of God. And they're like the Old Testament soldiers, ready for battle. That's a possibility. I think it's more a symbolic way to say they're pure. Go to verse 8. I just want to show you the contrast, which we'll get to, in Babylon. And by extension, our current cultural moment, our world, world how Babylon is described. Verse 8. Another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who has made all the nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. So if Babylon, this great city, is the who has enticed those to eat and drink of the sexual immoral culture, the mountain has the people who have not done that very thing. They're the pure ones. So here's the picture. Sistine Chapel looking, a dragon, a land beast, a sea beast. And over here at the highest possible part, Mount Zion, completely protected, stands 144,000 pure virgins, undefiled, blameless, spotless. And here's the scandalous reality. What's being described in that picture involves a lot of you and I in this room. You don't walk in here thinking, you know, if I had one way to describe myself, pure, (laughs) undefiled, spotless. Like, I don't know what the purest color is, but that would be the, the color that portrays who I am. Here's the reality of being a Christian. This thing says crazy things. Hard stuff that we're going to get into that's just hard for all of us to digest, and then crazy truths about you and I who trust Jesus that doesn't make sense if we just let our senses write our story and our history write our story. But if we let the gospel write our story, it's a lot different. Like, here's the picture I have. Xavier's not in this room. You can tell him the story. I said it first service. But there's a, he's a good guy. He's got a few quirks. Here's the most annoying thing about Xavier Salazar, just so you know. You're like, I got a list. If you ever invite him over to his house, he does this thing, which if you do this, Good on you. I don't do it. He parks in your driveway. And he does it like, I just don't park in people's driveway. I'm like, it's totally fearful that I'm going to soil their driveway with my old car and all the oil. Xavier does like this, such a baller move. He comes to our house one time, and he's like backing in, like just all the way into our driveway, almost into our garage, backs his truck up all the way against my garage door and hops out like he owns the place, like he's lived in that house for 20 years, and he's just a guest who's graciously been invited over, and his stupid Tacoma back, I'm like, who is this guy? I just hired this guy. I spent some money on the salary for this guy. I don't do that. Some of you do. If you have old cars like me, you don't do that, because you're always going to leave little bits of oil on somebody's nice driveway. A few weeks ago, probably three weeks ago, my wife and I are on this great date. One of my sons is out at a football game with a friend of a neighbor guy who lives in the area. He drives old, stinky cars like I do. And my worst nightmare happened. I get home. Jude had been dropped off already. And there's a p- 
puddle of oil, like as big as this table, just like bubbling up, still just hot from the engine. And then there's clumps of oil. You can see exactly where he pulled in. I'm like, John, you, uh, all the way out. You can see it onto Altadena and then off. You could watch it, and then left on 28 streets. I could follow. I know exactly where it's going to be. It's going to be in his driveway. He did exactly what I hate, and my date night was then over. I'm like, all right, Google, how do you clean up 16 gallons worth of oil from a driveway? (laughs) And I did my best, and I cleaned, and I cleaned, and I cleaned, and I cleaned. Here's what all religion is. There's oil stains on us, in us, through us. In the form of sin. You might not call it that, but I'll give you biblical language for a human reality. It's rebellion against God and it's hurt towards others. And we have sins against others and we've been sinned against. And as much as we want to try and clean it up, there's this oily residue to us. Here's some of the options on the table right now. Just get therapy. And I'm all for that. I have a counselor I meet with. And we can talk through family of origin and personality styles and guilt and fear and shame and all these very necessary things. But if you rely solely on human elements to fix a heavenly problem, you're going to be like me going out there the next morning and still seeing oil on my driveway. That is religion. Christianity is altogether different. Like, just a real example. Last week I talked about pornography use. Suppose that's you. So you want to get right, get clean. How many days of sobriety from that would you need when you felt pure? Like four days? Let's go two weeks. Let's go a month. Here's the reality. If it's addiction, if it's like people-pleasing, if it's sexual, whatever it is, we all got our stuff. We can all put it out there and talk about it. But there's never a moment where the work I put into this makes me feel like, ah, I'm clean. That never comes. Unless this book is true. And in the grand scheme of how God sees this world, there's a mountain. And on it stands 144,000 the people of God from across the ages. And how are they described? It's not with their wisdom, their intellect, their knowledge, their money, their success. They're described with their purity. Those who have not defiled themselves. That is our first weapon we have is a gospel that cleanses us. Otherwise, we're out in the middle of the night trying to clean up our driveway. And it never gets clean, I promise you. Ever. You move the needle a little bit. But you always walk out to the same reality until you open up this book and he says, I will cleanse you. First Corinthians says this about us. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Point blank reality of all of us outside of Christ. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkards, nor the revilers, nor the swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. In other passages it says, and those also disobedient to their parents, which I love as a parent. (laughs) So he just lumped us all in. No kingdom of God for you. The very next line, this is how the gospel works, is clean as a page turn is, 
is the reality of what God can do by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The Apostle John says it this way, I saw a mountain, and on that mountain were 144,000 blameless, pure virgins, regardless of what we think. That's what God says for those of us in Christ Jesus. Amen? That is amazing news. Here's the second tool we need. We don't just need grace to cleanse our souls. We also have work to do. Verse 6, this next angel is introduced again. Sistine Chapel, I see this mountain, then boom, looks over, and he sees this. Verse 6, another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. If our first thing is a song about the grace we have received, that we are this singing group on this mountain, we're the only ones who know that song. Why? Because we're the only ones who would experience grace. It's offered to all, but we've taken it in. And now, before we get to celebrate on the mountain, just hang out, this angel comes and reminds us, by the way, you have work to do. I didn't give you that freedom so you could just be with other free people. There's an eternal gospel, eternal, never-ending gospel, good news. There's good news from God that never changes. From season to season, generation to generation, culture to culture, it is the eternal gospel. It is unchanging. Gospel simply means this, good news, evangelion, good news. Just to write this down, this is just a helpful reminder. I heard it 15 years ago when I first came into the church we got it there. We got someone on slides there, Audrey. The gospel is good news. It's not advice. Advice is, hey, Google how to clean up oil, how to get better self-esteem, how to deal with the guilt and fear and shame of a lifetime of bad decisions. Do this, do this, do this. There's lots of advice out there for us. But the gospel doesn't claim to be advice. It claims to be news of something that's happened in history, unique to all other religions, that God intervened in history. He did not watch from a distance, Allah and my Muslim friends. He did not give a book of how to get right with God, my Mormon friends. He did not give a banner of self-expression, my American, Western, secular friends as a way to freedom and joy. He gave a gospel of good news. And here's the elements. If you miss one of these, you're missing the gospel. It's the good news of Jesus' life. God in the flesh, a Jewish man born 2,000 years ago to a virgin, really lived on this earth. His life is recorded in this book. He lived a perfect life. Sinless is the Bible's word. He died a real death. The Bible would unpack it in other parts of the Bible saying it was a substitutionary atoning death, meaning his death could be yours if you receive it by faith, meaning you will never face death ever again. The Bible would describe your death as sleep as you enter into eternity. He was placed in a grave. I love the detail. The Bible says he was placed in a rich man's grave, which is exactly what happened. Joseph of Arimathea, which he was kind of like a, a weak, weenie Christian watching from a distance. And then Jesus dies, and he, this weak, weenie Christian, which is such a beautiful picture of faith, steps in, takes the dead body, and places him in a grave he purchased. Three days later, he rose from his own grave. It says, in the grave, neatly folded, 
or the cloths involved. It's like God's way to say, you guys unraveled this thing. I can picture Jesus just like, I mean, what a beautiful picture as he steps out into new creation. I've come to fix this thing. Spends 40 days walking on earth with his disciples. Yep, it's really me. Go ahead. We can do this again. It's really me. Trust me. 40 days later, he ascends in the same way that he's going to descend one day very soon, the Bible says. And now what is he doing? He sits on the throne, and now Jesus is king of the universe. That is the gospel, the eternal gospel that this angel is proclaiming. Now, here's the difference with that news and news you get on TMZ or my CNN app or wherever you look for news. Most news is just to be read, sort of take it or leave it. Emotionally invest in this news as much as it affects you and you want it to affect you. But the gospel of Jesus Christ makes all of us face it and respond to it, either in affirmation or denial that Jesus is the king of the universe. That's the option. Let's just walk, walk through this and see this. Verse 8, or verse 7. He says this with a loud voice, fear God, give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. He did not just proclaim an eternal gospel that Jesus is sitting on the throne. He gives us stuff to do. Fear God, give him glory. The gospel is what Jesus has done. Here's the reality. Every time the gospel is preached in the New Testament, whether it's Jesus or a disciple, there's a response asked for. And it falls into one of three categories. Repent, turn around. You're going the wrong way. Like Christians in this room, not people that are figuring this out, but Christians. Part of being a good, loving Christian is to think about people in our life and what we're asking them to do if we were to share the gospel and ask them to repent of how much of their life they're having to change and sever and tweak. If you don't have any, like, severe reality that you have to deal with, like, you're not thinking deep enough about what Jesus is requiring. Turn around. Repent. Here's the other one. Follow me, which is another way to say, turn around. Come with me. You're going the wrong direction. And the third one is obey. Turn around. Repent. Obey. Turn around, repent, obey. Come with me. Or else, more angels come in with probably the most graphic imagery in this book. Verse 8. Here's what the next two angels say as they fly over the top in this image that John has given. Another angel, a second, followed saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all the nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Here's the first thing. Babylon, the great city, is falling. I lived in Texas for a season. They tore down the first Texas stadium. And the, you know, all the engineers put the dynamite where it's supposed to go. And, and then they're saying Babylon is falling. Western culture is falling. Pagan secular culture is, it's all falling. Chapter, or verse 9. What do we do with this? And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, 
and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. So let's drink the wine of God's wrath, not diluted at all, full strength of God's wrath, and he or she will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb, and smoke will go up forever and ever. Forever and ever, whenever it's used in the Bible, it means forever and ever, never ending. And they have no rest day or night. So some of you invited friends, welcome. What we're talking about is hell. This is one of the ways the scripture describes hell. So what I want to do is just quickly, hell is not universally agreed upon, obviously, for a variety of reasons, even within Christian traditions. But there's traditionally three views on hell that people take. I want to just kind of give you a quick overview and then say what I think this passage is pushing us towards. Three views on hell. There's annihilation, there's ultimate reconciliation, and there's eternal conscious torment. So just the marketing people behind the naming of this. There's like one that stands out as like, I want option number two, please. I don't want to be annihilated, and I don't want eternal conscious torment. Which one of these does Revelation and the rest of the Bible push us through? Let me just show you how people get to annihilation, and I'll tell you what it is. Here's a passage on Matthew. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. This is Jesus speaking. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. What annihilation teaches is that God will destroy those who are unrepentant, not in the Jesus camp. They have not trusted in Jesus. They will be annihilated. So their punishment is eternal. That's the same. But their experience is not eternal because they cease to exist. That's annihilation. So they would take passages like this and say, see, God just ceases them to exist. That's not where I think the Bible pushes. I, I see how people get there, but that's annihilation. That's, and it's growing in popularity. It's been around since Jesus left, and it's growing in popularity for people diving in the Bible, and also I think it fits with like, gosh, a more, uh, uh, that, that feels better to me than the other option. Here's the next one. Ultimate reconciliation. This is Colossians 1, 19, 20. We preached this to kick off our church plant two years ago, three years ago. This is one of the areas where they'd get this. For in him all the fullness of God, speaking of Jesus, was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. What's going to be reconciled? All things. Why? By Jesus. Well, how so? There's one really heretical way to think about this is just Jesus' blood covers all of us. There's no work on my part to receive any of that. It's just universal. Everyone's good. There's churches in our area that teach universalism. You could drive three minutes away from here and go to a church that teaches a doctrine like this. Or the other way they get there is, you people get sent to hell, but sort of in a purgatory sense, but they, they're able to repent and to change their mind and then to go and be reconciled. And I, I totally, from a heart level, get why I want that to be true. However, I think the Bible, church history, would teach us this one. Eternal conscious torment. I just want to read again the passage from Revelation. He will be tormented. Speaking of those who did not repent, did not choose to fear God and glorify him, would be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Just that imagery right there is like, oh, 
and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Now, some, one guy after last service said very, he's like, why do we take that so literal? But everything else, you're like, ah, it's not really a dragon. It's kind of like a dragon. The rest of scripture would push towards this reality, the eternality of our existence, the fierce reality of God's justice and what that means, and the fact that Jesus talked about hell more than anyone else. So it's like, you can't say, I'm just a Jesus guy. I am too. Now, here's what I want to say. This is true of everything in life, but especially true in the church. If you don't like something, there's ways to justify what you'd rather to be true about any area of life. Diet. I'm not a big keto guy. I don't want those keto guys to be wrong. Or is keto wrong? <laughs> of course it is. I'll tell you a million reasons why keto is the worst way to think about your health. I don't eternal judgment does god really eternally judge us you'll land on options to kind of fill whatever space feels better and just as your pastor i get that but faith is like receiving some things that are so beautiful and good and you just can't wait to grab and embrace and also sort of putting my hand out and taking that which the father gives me and receiving it soberly in community, prayerfully, and that is one of those areas. Just to give you an example, I Googled, like, what are other options other than these three? And the guy said, I have a fourth option. And he graduated from a seminary I really respect. And this is what his blog says. Here's my fourth way. What does this mean, then, about non-believers who die? So he would say, I'm not the eternal torment, I'm not the annihilation, and I'm not the universal reconciliation. So what's their eternal state, those that aren't in Jesus? The truth is that the Bible says almost nothing about the question of the eternal state of the unregenerate people. So I trust in the love, mercy, and goodness of God to work it out. Now, I don't, I don't want to be snarky, but so do I. So do a lot of us. When you start to get into bad doctrine, often people claim mercy and goodness and love. And it just gets to a point where it's like, the worst of me wants to fight. The Jesus in me is like, I get where they're coming from, but we all have that. He continues, I don't think that God will annihilate part of his eternal creation, nor do I believe that God will cause the objects of his love to suffer at all in eternity. But this doesn't make me a universalist, for I also believe that God respects the decisions of people to live without him if they so choose. Therefore, I believe that God in his wisdom and sovereignty will create a way for people to live forever, separated from him, but not in a way that tortures them for eternity. My house, we call that a timeout. Like, we need space. He's describing a reality where everyone still lives forever, some of us in heaven, the rest of us not in heaven, but no torture. That feels really good to me. As I've done funerals for family members who don't know Jesus, people I love most, it's like, I want that to be true. But I can't get there in Scripture. And Revelation, which is sort of like the exclamation point on life, gives us this and just reminds us the consequences are severe. There is a gospel that must be received, that must be, you must repent of your sins and turn toward Jesus or else. And here's just the reality of our culture. I was thinking about this, like just the, my last three days of life, not to like, this, if this comes across as a humble brag, like I've got a great life, I apologize. I'm just 
you, some of you had a better couple days than me. Friday morning, kicked off the morning with biscuits and gravy. It was amazing. Wife made it. Kids are home. We go to the gym, work out. It's amazing. We have a double date with really good friends that night. Watch the D-backs. Watch half of it. Come home, watch, finish watching the D-backs with my son, Ozzy. Play catch Like, just amazing. Wake up, have another great breakfast, lots of good coffee. Go to the football field, have four games with my son, just living it up. Come home, what do I do again? Great bratwurst dinner, and I watch the D-backs, and they win. It's amazing. All the while, I know that come Sunday morning, I'm unpacking this. And not once was my mind, like, drawn towards eternal thoughts. Heaven, hell. Why? Because the life we live sucks us down into sort of just the the non-transcendent reality. Nothing about our normal lives brings us into an encounter with heaven, hell, eternity. Our culture is like pushed it out. Like some churches back in the day used to have cemeteries. How do you get to a church? You walk through the cemetery and you see eternity right before you walk into the church door. A lot of us used to have our older relatives live with us until they died in our homes. That doesn't happen anymore. We used to walk into art like the Sistine Chapel where like eternal things were on display. We just don't have that life. So as much as I can, I want to remind you that this is a gift from God to hear this, that which all of us would probably avoid if we could. But the second tool is this. That there is a gospel message that we now, the pure ones on the mountain, must go down the mountain with and share with a world that needs it. Because there is consequences to what we do, Jesus. It takes us to our final tool we have, and it's simply this. There is a day coming when God will finally judge good and evil. And I just want to remind you, Christian, of the good in this. There's a harvest coming. Verse 12. Let's read verse 12. Here's what John wants to encourage us with. Here's a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. Here's the Christian truth in this moment. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. And blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. Christian, we can rest from striving and also know confidently that our work we're doing now will follow us on into eternity for a great judgment. It's described in verse 14. This is the great judgment of Jesus. There's two judgments here described. Verse 14 to 16. I looked. Again, he sees another image. Now a white cloud seated on the cloud, one like the Son of Man. That's Jesus with the golden crown on his head. He's the king and a sharp sickle in his hand. He's about to reap the harvest. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he, sat, so he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. What has happened? It's simply to say, one day Jesus is going to come back and judge all things, and part of his judgment is swooping in all Christians and giving them that which they've earned from the works done here on earth in this life. And tied to that very same judgment would be a judgment involving non-Christians, which is the very next, verse 17. And then another angel came out of the temple, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, and the angel who has authority over the fire, he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle. Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, 
for its grapes are ripe. Before it was talked about the harvest of the earth. Now it's talking about grapes. Imagery is switched. We're talking about two different things. Verse 19. Again, John ends very graphically. Now the angel swung a sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, which is where non-Christians, they can't enter the holy city. And blood flowed from the winepress as high as the horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. There's a lot different in those images. There's one thing that stands out to me that's the same, and it's the patience of God. When does he do this judgment? About the first judgment for us Christians. Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the earth is fully ripe. What about the unrighteous one, the one that had so much blood involved? It says this, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. There is a day coming, and God is going to judge the living and the dead. Every deed seen and unseen, every thought, every motive will be put on display to be judged by God. But it's not coming before the fullness of Christians completing what God has them to complete, for starters. And then in a weird way that we don't fully understand, until the fullness of the grapes are full, meaning the unrighteous deeds have reached the max, and God says, enough. And he comes to judge the living and the dead. And John ends with the most bloody picture in all of Scripture. The angel swings a sickle across. The wine press was trodden outside of the city, and blood flowed from the wine press as high as the horse's bridle, so as high as a horse's back in about 1,600 stadia, which is about 200 miles. So it's like all of Israel being covered in blood up to the back of a horse. And with that, the image comes to completion. What do we do with that? Part of what I realize with, when I invite people that don't know Jesus when they come to church is we are weirdly infatuated with blood. We're going to sing songs after this. I bet you there's blood in one of those songs. Why? Because here's what the Bible teaches. There are two judgments in this world. There's one coming where God is going to judge the unrighteous, and there's one that's already come. Both involve blood. I think what God in his kindness is doing is just flashing lights so we don't miss. When it first got passed around to the early church and then us as we open this up. Do not miss this. Why do we have life in us? Because there's blood in us. How will we have life and life eternal? We need blood. Whose blood? Jesus Christ. There are two judgments. Christian, here's the reality. We will not shed a drop of blood, experience any punishment from God ever, because all of that was laid on Jesus. Non-Christian, as kindly and as from the heart as I can say, if that's not true of you, this is painting a picture of what awaits for the world in rebellion against God. But there's still time. Today is the day of salvation. Repent and believe and receive the purity that only Jesus can offer. Amen? Let's pray together. God, thank you for the scriptures, that which we would not given a, a board to make decisions or given a committee or a survey. There's so much in this that would not be our first flinch, and yet we need it. We need to be soberly reminded of eternity and your kingdom.
and the fact that all the kingdoms of the earth are crumbling. And in them reside our friends, our family, our neighbors, some of us, clinging to a world that is passing away. God, we are the people standing on the mountain with purity that was given to us as a gift, a song in our mouth that no one else knows, the song of grace, and a message to proclaim to a world that so desperately needs it. I think of Paul's words, who is sufficient for these things? None of us. None of us claim confidence or ability to fight this battle well, but God, we want to be faithful to you. We want to follow you wherever you have us. So help us to be faithful to pray for and to share the gospel with those in our lives. And for those in this room who have yet to believe, I pray that your kindness would overwhelm them. And they would trust you. And stop striving to clean up that which they'll never clean up. We love you. Amen.